Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, um, by the will of God, to God's holy people of Ephesus, the faithful in in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be the holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to his sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in, one of, in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the you know, times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the, plan, to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thank you, Jordan. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Uh, I can't imagine ever writing a letter that would be studied 2,000 years later, but I thank you for Paul's letter to this church and to the churches in in Asia Minor, that uh, has spoken to your church through the centuries about what it is to be your people and about how your purpose is in eternity through Christ. And give us a glimpse and not only teach our minds today, but please, Holy Spirit, light a fire in our hearts as we think about these amazing truths and through this series. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I get get on an airplane, I love to try and sit next to the window. For obvious reasons, you get to get a great view. And I love it when you take off on an airplane because on the ground level, you've got all the detail of day-to-day, the stuff you can see, the people, the trees, and all that. And then as you know, you take off, and all that day-to-day detail disappears and becomes hard to see. But you then get what's called, I'm going to call big detail. So I love taking off from, um, uh, from Ireland, going back to the UK now and again, and you go over Hoth. And then you can see all down, you know, almost to Wicklow and maybe even to Wexford. I don't know how far down. And the detail that I cannot see day to day, I see from the air this coastline, that beautiful coastline that weaves along. Um, So the higher you get, the less of the day-to-day detail you get, but the more perspective of the big picture that you see. New details emerge. Big details emerge. Businesses even use the analogy of saying, I want to get a 30,000 for view of my business. It's a business term, and it comes from this idea of zooming up and seeing the big picture. Where have we come from? Where are we going? Where are we at now? What do we need to put in place? Well, Paul starts his letter to the church in Ephesus, which is probably a circular letter to a number of churches. 
in the region of Asia, Mi Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, by giving them a 30,000-foot view of what it is to be a Christian. Come out of the detail. Zoom right out. What is it to be a Christian? And as we zoom out, we lose the day-to-day -day detail, but we get the big picture of being a Jesus follower. And uh, we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn we're chosen for adoption by the Father, that we're redeemed for unity by the Son, and that we're sealed for inheritance by the Spirit. Or put it simply, a Christian is someone who's given up their story and is being caught up in God's big story, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll come back to this idea of being caught up in God's big story. Now, verses 3 to verses uh, 14, so there's 11 verses, are actually one big sentence. There's not a pause, there's not a comma, there's not a full stop. Paul doesn't even take breath in the original Greek. He just goes as he considers this big view of what it is to be a Christian. He's breathless, he's getting all these verbs out and all these nouns out, and he's, it's like a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up speeds and size and volume as it descends. Paul's words come tumbling out of his mouth in increasing velocity and, and power. Um, and it's a song of praise because Paul himself is starting to sing because he's started to understand what it is to be caught up in God's story. He's now singing. That's what I prayed in my prayer, that our hearts would burn. By the way, Paul writes his letter from prison. Chapter 620, he talks about being an ambassador in chains. So Paul singing while chained to a Roman officer, probably around AD 60, AD 61, which is kind of the whole point. If you can appreciate what it is that your story doesn't dominate, God's story dominates, and you're caught up in it, you can sing in prison. Who can sing in prison? Someone who says, it's not about my story, it's about another story that I am caught up in. In other words, if God's story becomes your story, you can face anything and sing and have words pouring out of your mouth of praise like Paul does. So let's see this big picture. Um, start with chosen for adoption by the Father, verses 4 to 6. This big picture starts in eternity past. Verses, uh, uh, you see that in, in, in verses 3 and 4. What was God doing billions of years ago? Before the world, before you and I, what was God doing? Verses 4 and 5, for he chose us in him to be, uh, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Long before we ever chose to follow Jesus, God the Father chose us. And he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In this pre-creation eternity, God did something. He formed a purpose in his mind, and that purpose concerned you and Jesus, that we together might be adopted as sons or daughters or heirs. It's mind-boggling to think that before the creation of the world, God had his eye on you. Mind-boggling. And his eye on you was to say, I want you to be holy and blameless and my child. Theologically, this is known as the doctrine of election or predestination. It's a doctrine taught in the Old Testament about Israel, Jesus in a number of places, particularly John chapter 6, and the apostles Paul and Peter. It's a biblical doctrine. For most of us, the doctrine of predestination makes us feel very uneasy. We typically have a negative, knee-jerk reaction to this idea of predestination because it means somehow we must eliminate human choice and decision. It's like a cruel doctrine. 
God arbitrarily chooses some, so, which means he can't choose others. How can that be fair? Well, let me give you a few thoughts that have helped me grapple with this biblical doctrine that we have to grapple with. The Bible repeatedly tells us that what, what is written is for our good. So how is this for our good? Why does the Bible teach this? How is it good news? And we have to be humble to receive divine revelation when we might struggle with human reason. So four things I've got for you. You might find them helpful, you may not. Firstly, paradox and mystery. Much of Christian doctrine, you have to hold attention or you have to understand that there's a mystery that you'll never fully uh, uh, penetrate or a paradox. So in mathematics, we have the idea of infinity. I studied maths at degree. Infinity creates all kinds of paradoxes we can't solve, but we need infinity for those who can't do maths. In philosophy, we have all kinds of paradoxes. There's a secular version of this one, like, I'm free to make my decisions. Well, am I? My genes, the society around me, am I really free? There's a secular version of this that I studied at philosophy. When I did it at a degree, I did it with maths, just so you don't think I did lots of degrees. Um, in philosophy, there's the paradox of uh, identity. So, for example, I share very little with my five-year-old self, but I'm still the same person. But I basically have very little that was me back then. Or we have the paradox of vagueness. We say, a certain person is tall, but when do you stop becoming tall? When I take off two millimeters, three millimeters? And, 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 and so then you have to conclude either everyone is tall or no one is tall. And that's why none of you did philosophy, because you're like, what the heck? This is ridiculous. Um, in science, we believe in energy, but no one has an idea what it is. The greatest physicist at the time, uh, now, Fernman, says, no, we don't know. Or we know that light is both a particle and a wave. So how can it be a particle and a wave? But we know light. In Christianity, you have God is fully man and fully, uh, Jesus is fully man and fully God. Not half and half, both. Do we go, it can't be true because I can't get my head around it? You have to accept it's true. Athanasius in the fourth century when debating with Arian about the Arian heresy, who didn't believe that Jesus was fully man, said, well, if he's not fully man, you can't have your salvation because he has to be fully God to bring us to God. He has to be fully man to represent you. He must be both. Otherwise, you have no salvation. God is three, God is one. Which is he? Jesus is a lion and he's a lamb. Which is he? He's both. God is transcendent, far above us and right imminent with us. So in other words, you have to accept mystery and paradox throughout your life and in the Christian faith, even if you can't fully understand it by human reason. What Paul is emphasizing in these verses is that before we chose God, God chose us. But we still had to choose him. Look at verse 13. Let's get down there. Uh, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of salvation, when you believed, when you believed, you were marked in him. You still had to believe to be included. So did God choose you before the beginning of time, or did I choose him when I believed? Both. So firstly, you have to accept mystery and paradox. You, don't have, to be, you have to penetrate it rather than feel like you have to rationalize it all. You have to live in the good of it. Rather than go, oh, I can't understand it. It can't be true. No, there's lots of things we can't understand. We live in the good of. Secondly, don't apply it the wrong way. And this is what, so for example, people say, I'm saved by grace. God forgives me, whatever. Therefore, I can sin and do what I want. No, that's a terrible application of grace. In the same way, a terrible application of predestination is to worry, well, should I bother with evangelism? Should I bother living a holy life? Should I get puffed up because I'm chosen? No, they're terrible applications of it. We must apply it correctly. And interestingly, the doctrine of election is only applied to believers. Paul's writing to a church, people that do believe, not to non-believers. And he's trying to help them understand their salvation. How does it help me understand my salvation? 
Well, here's, I think, the main thing. It gives me assurance. How do I know I'm going to get to the end and still be a Christian? God's got you. You haven't got God. He's got you. To humble us and to realize that salvation is all of God, not of ourselves. We have nothing to boast in. That's important. To actually give us a stimulus to holiness. Can I ever live a holy life? I'm destined for holiness and blamelessness. Like Neo in in The Matrix or or Luke Skywalker in, 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 in Star Wars. They're given a destiny, but it's a challenging one. But then you can step into it and embrace it. So live holy lives because God has called you to be holy. It enables us to go into all the world. Why do I pray for my friends that they might receive the message of the gospel? Because I believe God might work in their heart. God is at work. A great encouragement to me, planting a church in Dublin many years ago when I was wrestling, should we come and when we'd come, was words that Paul spoke to, uh, well, God spoke to Paul when he was in Corinth having a tough time and being persecuted. And he says this, he says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Why was Paul motivated to spread the word of God? Why did he endure persecution? Because God said, I've got many people here and I need you to go and preach to them. They're my people, go and find them. In other words, Paul is not expecting us to solve the mystery of predestination, rather live in the good of it. We cannot solve the mystery of how Jesus can be fully man or fully God, but we must live in the good of it. We cannot solve the mystery of how light is both a particle and a wave, but we accept it and appreciate the light we receive. I remember hearing a story of a missionary in Thailand. I've been trying to work with many that were working in the sex trade and prostitutes and uh, women that are being trafficked. And a number of these women started to show interest in Jesus and salvation and the gospel. But they felt they were too dirty, too defiled, and too ugly to be saved. There's just no way they could be blameless and holy in God's sight after all their life so far. And so they didn't accept the gospel and believe in Jesus. They refused Christ because they couldn't accept it for themselves. The missionary got breakthrough when he said, what if it wasn't down to you? What if it wasn't your choice? What if God has already, in eternity past, chosen you to be holy and blameless? The decision's not yours. And they got breakthrough, and the women came to faith. Application of the doctrine the correct way is life-giving. Application in the wrong way leaves you in horrible paradoxes that you never solve, or horrible contradictions. And that is what we're supposed to do with this doctrine, not quibble over those who haven't been and all that. How is it applied to our life? Thirdly, I want you to think about your personal story, your own story of salvation. Just think about it for those of you that have become believers. Did you really choose God or did it really feel when you think back, actually, God was always after me. Before I ever went for God, look at all, look, that person did this and this happened and then that event happened in my life. I never would have got to the place of thinking about trusting in him if he hadn't already been doing all these wonderful things that got me to that place. I know that's my story. Coming to, you know, almost coming to believe in Jesus is coming to believe that he's pursuing you before you started pursuing him. As one person put it, God is the hound of heaven. He's coming after us, and we're stubborn, rebellious people that don't want to receive him. But he's looking for us. As you struggle and grapple to get your heads around this idea of God's election, an illustration that one person has given talks about becoming a Christian like walking through a narrow door. On the front of the door is painted the words of Jesus' gracious universal invitation from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary 
and burdened, and I will give you rest, a universal invitation. When we walk through the door and look back at the other, uh, from the inside, we read the comforting reassurance of sovereign election of Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption. It's both and. Fourthly, just a quick one, this is so key, you, you really need predestination to ensure grace. You want to be saved by grace? Isn't that the great thing we've just been singing about? It washes over me. It's very like Paul's language of lavish. You know, it's this amazing doctrine. <laughs> if two people have heard the gospel and one accepts it and one doesn't, why? Well, I mean, you could say, well, look, uh, I've accepted it because I saw the light. Yeah, but why did you see the light? Ah, oh, because I had understanding. Yeah, but why did you have understanding? Well, because I was humble enough to accept it. Why were you humble enough? In other words, at some point... You have to say, I'm intellectually or morally superior to the person that didn't get it. In other words, you do have something to boast about. Your salvation is not by grace. To preserve grace, it's got to be all of God. And I think we want to preserve grace. So, look, there are some things that have helped me think through this doctrine rather than ignore it. You can't ignore it. It's everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but it's predominant in the biblical story. And it's for our good. Why? Apply it in the right way, think about your own story, accept the mystery and the paradox of it, and put grace at the center of it all. But remember the end sentence. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. God didn't want slaves or subjects or dutiful followers. He wanted children, sons, heirs, men and women, heirs together. A theologian called Jerry Packus, on his chapter in adoption in his amazing book called Knowing God, you must read it, it says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. Christianity says, God, has a, you've been made right with your judge, and now he has become your father who loves you. Packer says, to sum up the whole New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. And he then says at the end of his chapter, do I as a Christian understand myself? Though I know my own real identity, my own real destiny, I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother or sister too. Say it over and over to yourself. Please do this. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, and any time your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. The Almighty God, the Creator of heavens and earth, the one who can, has the, the sea in his, in his hands like a drop in a bucket, you can whisper into his ear and go, Father. It's amazing. When I think of being a father of two children, I've clearly I love them both equally in one sense. You know, I love them, I care for them, I provide food and shelter and uh, uh, emotional support and all kinds of things, but I love them differently. One of them likes to cuddle up on the sofa and one of them likes to take penalties at me. You can guess which is which. I know what, what, how one makes one laugh and one, one gets really annoyed with. In other words, our Heavenly Father knows us individually. Don't just believe, oh, like I'm a child of God and we're all children. Yeah, that's true. It's wonderful. What does Paul say? We've all received redemption. We've all received forgiveness. We've all received the legal status of adoption. We've all received an inheritance. That's true for all of us. But he also has his eye on you and knows what makes you tick. He knows what you need. He knows your current situation. 
in a way that you don't even know, let alone anyone else. God the Father has his eye on you. He loves you uniquely. Do you know God as Father? Do you realize this big picture? Are you starting to have a heart that burns? Are you with awe and wonder? Do you feel an assurance that he's got you? I hope you're starting to become breathless like Paul. Because there's more. He goes from the Father to the Son, redeemed for unity by the Son, verses 7 to 10. We've thought about eternity past. What about eternity future? Where's the world going? Where am I going? What are we all destined for? Verse 10, a summary of the kind of what you could say, the whole Bible story. Just look down at verse 10. I'll start in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What's the end goal? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Where is history going? What is God's future purpose for this world? To bring everything to unity in heaven and on earth under Christ. The word unity can mean unite, sum up, gather together. In other words, Paul is saying because of the fall, because of human sin and rebellion and God's curse, there's lots of division, there's brokenness, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's lots of disunity. Heaven and earth was once united, the Garden of Eden, and that's now separated out. The natural order of things has become corrupted by death. Our world around us isn't really at unity. It's not harmonized. Nations and ethnic groups are at war with each other. Just listen to the news. Communities are broken down. Homes are broken down. Marriages are broken down. Our world is not united. Our weak and frail identity is broken. Our psychological state, we're not even united in ourselves. We have all kinds of self-esteem problems, don't we? We do. There's a lack of unity in our world. And, basi- and Paul says, all that is wrong, all that is divided, all that is chaotic is one day going to be united. All the relationships are going to work as they should work, internally to yourself, in marriages, in homes, in heaven and on earth. And the rest of Ephesians, and we're going to look at this for a few weeks now, months, Paul is saying, this future unity that is coming to the whole cosmos, the whole world, heaven and earth, has started in the church. This is the amazing thing about the church. He says it started here. You have a symbol and a foretaste of what's going to happen everywhere. And so chapter 2, next week, he says, you and God are united. You were an enemy, but now you're united to God. That's the key unity that needs to be fixed. Then he says, in the end of chapter 2, Jew and Gentile, like all nations are now together, equal, equal footing. The dividing wall of hostility, famously. And then he says, marriages. Let me teach you what a unified marriage looks like. Let me teach you what a unified household looks like. Let me teach you what a unified workplace looks like. All this is a symbol and a foretaste of a future unity. It's an astonishing understanding of the church that we are a foretaste of what is to come. Let me remind you that Paul writes this amazing lofty view of eternity past, eternity future, as a prisoner in Rome. Not in a cell or a dungeon, but still under house arrest, handcuffed to a Roman soldier. John Stott, a commentator, says, Yet though his wrist was chained and his body confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. Paul's not finished. He's got more breath to get out and be out of breath. From the Father to the Son to the Spirit, being sealed for eternity, uh, inheritance by the Spirit, verses 11 to 14. There's three descriptions given of the Spirit there. Do you see that, 13 and 14? The first one, well, it's the end of chapter, verse 13, a promise. 
In other words, the Spirit is promised from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was always external. The burning bush, external to Moses. Mount Sinai, burning, external to the people of Israel. Uh, The tabernacle, the temple where God's presence dwelt, where no one could really get in, external to the people. The pillar of fire at night, external to the people. God says, one day I'm promising that my presence goes in people. And the external presence that you've known, and it's been kind of scary at points, is going to come and live within you. And the law that was written by Moses on tablets of stone is going to be written in your heart. There's a promise of a spirit to come who's going to take the external presence of God and put it right within us. Then there's a seal. A seal is a mark of ownership, authenticity, and protection. As a letter has a seal on it, doesn't it? Old-fashioned, you know, letters, you'd seal it, see if the seal had been broken, who the letter is from. But animals had a seal, like a mark. Who's an- still today, whose animal is this? And then, if you know, it's a sheep. We have a sheep farm in our midst. You know, this is my sheep. I've got to protect it because it's got my seal on it. And so we are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are marked in Christ. We are protected in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is our protector. He's our seal. He's what guarantees our authentic, and we know this authentic relationship with our Father through him. Thirdly, a deposit. And the Greek word does mean deposit, like this down payment or this first installment, this pledge, like buying a house. You, you, it's, you pay the first bit, 10%, and then you've got another 90 to go, but you paid the first bit. And the first bit goes, well, now it's mine, and I'll pay the rest, and I'll figure out those stresses in a bit. But So the Holy Spirit is the first bit, the pledge, the down payment of God's future world. Everything one day will be united in Christ. How do I know? Because I've been given the down payment. I've been met, we just sang it. It was what Craig and Matthew so wonderfully, I didn't know they were going to do it. From, you know, we've, been, we've made a new creation, this new creation where everything's united has happened first in my heart. The rest is coming. As one person put it, I love this, the Holy Spirit is like a delicious first course of a sumptuous spiritual feast to come. We've had a taste of a meal, but only the new creation where we get the full feast. But we are guaranteed the second and third courses. The Holy Spirit's ministry is now, now is a mouth-watering foretaste of a feast that we shall enjoy in the presence of God. Are you out of breath yet? Have you understood it? Is your heart burning? Is your mind boggled? Before we finish, I want to look at two different phrases that Paul repeats four times to sum up this huge story of God. It's all about him and we get caught up to. The first phrase have on the screen there is according to his will. He says it four times, verses 1, 5, 9, and 11, according to his will. In other words, we and this world is not an accident. Life isn't pointless. Life, there isn't, in God's economy, there's no such thing as waste. You feel like your life has a lot of waste or pointlessness? No, read Ephesians 1, according to his will. God is at work. We don't need to be anxious or full of self-pity or regrets. We live according to his will. Again, complex to get your head around at times. But another analogy that's helped thousands through the years is like a tapestry. And when you look at tapestry from one side of the tapestry, it looks a mess. You ever seen a beautiful tapestry on the one side? On the other side, it's just this rag of horrible um, you know, threads. And it's all falling and loose. And it's like, this is our side of eternity. And life can feel chaotic. And there's mess. And there's waste. And it feels pointless. And how does that bit of cord go to there and make anything? And then you flip the tapestry over and you go, ah, oh, look at that beautiful picture that God was painting. 
but only this side of eternity will I ever see it. Because often the times it just felt like it was lots of random bits of thread that didn't quite add up. And Paul says it's all according to his will. Everything is being worked out beautifully and precisely. It will one day look beautiful. You can't understand it now, but it will. The second thing he says is to the praise of his glory. Did you see that? Verse 3, 6, 12, and 14, to the praise of his glory. Who is at the center of this universe, this picture? Who is the one that should receive praise? How does the one, this amazing story of God's eternity past and eternity future, you know, what's, what's it all about? Who gets the praise from it? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They receive the praise. One person described Ephesians 1 like a spiritual Copernican revolution. Nicholas Copernicus was a 16th century astronomer who discovered that the sun doesn't rotate around the earth, but that our planets rotate around the sun. The sun is the center of the solar system and not our world. Likewise, as sinners, we like to think that God and the world rotates around us. We arrogantly question whether to allow God any part in our world and the future. Understanding that we've been chosen for adoption by the Father that we've been united to Christ now and one day in part of this united world, and we've been given a sumptuous taste, a guarantee of the, by the Spirit of this world, turns our world upside down. This is God's story, not ours, and we get caught up in it. He's at the center. Paul, without any sense of self-pity or frustration at his own chains, his own present circumstances, his own setbacks, he says, not only does the world not orientate around me, but God doesn't orientate around me. My world and the world orientates around Jesus, who's the head. When you feel sorry for yourself, you're forgetting who is the center of the universe. Is it God or is it you? And I want us to think about the practical implications of this. I said at the beginning, if you can learn to realize it's not about your story, it's God's story, and you get caught up in it. You give up your story, in a sense, to enter his. You can sing in prison. You can face anything. Which story is dominant? Is your story dominant in your life, or is God's story dominant in your life? Many Christians live as if the story that is dominant is theirs, and God is to help, you know, I pray when I need to, because God, would you help with my story? I've got these plans. I've got this career. I've got, would, God, would you just come in and just sort of help me in my story? Who's the center? This is God's story, and we're included. And if you will accept that, it's a big, it's, it's basically the Christian claim. You have to give yourself up, right? That's what Jesus said. You have to give it up. If you'll give up your story and enter his story, your life will change radically for the good. Not in terms of external circumstances, but you'll never be anxious. Because any sense of failure or inadequacy, well, it doesn't matter. It's his story. I'm caught up in it. I never have to achieve. Or it doesn't matter if it goes a bit wrong. It's, it's okay. You'll never become discontent. Because, you see, if you're aiming to make your story perfect and your future perfect, well, life never quite goes as you want. Nothing quite lives up to those expectations. But if it's God's story, you can be content satisfied with the foretaste the Holy Spirit has given you, knowing that the best is yet to come. And all those desires that are not met now will one day be met. Instead of God being convenient yet distant, someone who call, you call upon to, to serve you, you will be displaced from the center and get caught up in another story 
that is wonderful and everlasting. It's the true story. And here's wonderful in our modern world. You don't have to discover, craft, create, achieve, invent, or reinvent your story. That's when we get that message all the time from our culture. Ditch it. It's God's story, and we enter into it. So final thing about Ephesians 1. You should leave here, I expect. Right now, you've got two simultaneous feelings. You should. I, th- I did. It should feel radically threatening, what I'm saying right now. Because you are being displaced from the center, and God is being put at the center. John Stott, talking about Ephesians 1, said, Ephesians 1 comes into violent collision with the man-centeredness and self-centeredness of the world. Fallen man, imprisoned in his own little ego, has an almost boundless confidence in his power and his own will, an almost insatiable appetite for the praise of his own glory. But the people of God have at least begun to be turned inside out. The new society has new values, new ideals, for God's people are God's possession to live by God's will for God's glory. It should feel threatening. When Jesus says, would you come after me? He's not a nice, tame option. He's saying, give up everything. Displace yourself from the center. Let me come in. But the second thing, it should feel radically comforting. Because you're able to escape what the journalist Malcolm Ruggeridge called the tiny, dark dungeon of the ego. And we're, we can be at rest. We're loved from all eternity by our Father in heaven. We are going to be united fully to Jesus and this whole world and all the discord is going to go. And I've been, in a sumpt- I've been given a sumptuous foretaste through the Holy Spirit of the joy that I'm going to receive. The more we allow ourselves to be displaced from the center, the freer we will become. I'm chosen. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm adopted. I'm, a sealed, by the, I'm sealed by the Spirit, but I am not the center. It's to the praise of his glory. May God set us free. Move us out of the center. Let's live for him. Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing to finish. Father, thank you for uh, Ephesians chapter 1. As we reflect, I felt threatened and comforted as I prepared. Um, I'm guessing my friends and brothers and sisters do too. Lord, where we feel threatened, may we know that you are a God who loves us, who's for us. All these amazing truths, who's redeemed us by your blood. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a legal status as adopted as sons and daughters. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, we'd know this amazing assurance uh, that you chose us. I pray, Lord, for, for us to become the kind of church that can work through these issues in our heads. But more importantly, like Paul, can sing about them in prison. And that all that we think about would lead to worship and praise. And as we sing now, Lord, set our hearts on fire even more. And make us the kind of people that can go into Dublin and make the kind of effect Paul made in Ephesus when he stayed there for two years. And the whole area, it says, in Asia had heard the gospel by the time he finished his two years. Lord, as we come out of the center and as you come into the center... May it have this huge ripple effect all across Dublin, all in our homes, all in our communities this week, that we live for the praise of your glory. Amen.